Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. We're going to continue in our series in Galatians. Joel did a great job and he took us through Galatians 3 up till verse 15. And just a bit of context, Paul is still trying to convince the Galatian church that they are not um, a sect or a part of something that is different, second class, or unique, that they are part of what God's original plan was for the church. And so we continue, I pick up in verse 15 of Galatians 3, I'm reading out of the ESV. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Well, why then the law? Why was it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels and an intermediary. And what Paul's talking about there is the law that came to the Jewish people through angels and through Moses. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Father, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for its truth and power. I want to pray that you would empower me to be faithful to its preaching. I pray that you would empower us to be open, responsive to what it is that you are trying to say to us in Jesus' name. A scandalous promise. A promise is different to a wage. A wage is something you earn. A promise is something you receive. Um, I was uh, in a situation, I knew two brothers. One of them um, was with his grandmother in a different country and um, one of them was not. And this brother was taking care of the grandmother. And uh, the grandmother passed away, and she left her inheritance to the brother that looked after her and the brother that really had nothing to do with her, was in a different country. Well, the first brother was like, this is a little unfair. Um, I did all the caring, and I did all the looking after, and I did all the running around, and you did nothing. And the other brother is like, I wasn't there to be able to do this. This is not a wage. This is a promise. This is not built on our performance or our ability to do something. This was the grandmother saying, this is how I want my inheritance divided. Wills are weird things. Those of you that are old enough to be involved in this, maybe some of you are executors or whatever, they are weird things. They bring out the worst in people. There was this guy in Michigan called Wellington Burt. That's quite a nice name, right? And he decided that after he died, um, that he was not going to give his substantial fortune, which in today's age was around $15 million, 
that he was going to wait until the death of the last grandchild that he had, and then they would be able to divide the estate. And he did that because he was sick and tired of all the fighting that went on as he was dying about his estate, that he decided none of y'all are going to get this. And so in 2010, 12 people woke up rich and realized that, oh, this now belongs to us. And it is a promise, not a wage. Why is this important? Because Paul is trying to communicate a very similar thing to the Galatian church in verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant or a legal will, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. When God takes an oath, it's like a notarized signature. It cannot be changed. And the Jews that had snuck in are basically saying to the Gentiles, you guys are just an addendum to the covenant that was always for us. We are the people that this covenant is about. And you guys just happened to sneak in. This really isn't fair. And if you really want to be part of it, then you need to become fully Jewish. You need to obey the law and you need to be circumcised. But verse 18 says this, the inheritance, if it comes by the law, it no longer comes through the promise but God gave it to Abraham through a promise. It's something that God gave Abraham for all of mankind. And so one of the questions that we need to ask when Paul is saying the promise, the promise, the promise, is what is the promise? And this is what I would call the gospel preached in the Old Testament. Now, we know that Abraham is the father of our faith. The Jews believed that Abraham was the father of their faith, and that's what they looked to. One thing we need to understand is that when God pursued, like the song that we sang earlier, when God pursued Abraham, he was a moon worshiper. He wasn't looking for God. God found Abraham the way that he finds us, regardless of whether we're worshiping ourselves, whether we're worshiping money, whatever we're worshiping, God finds us. And he extends to us a promise of salvation based in faith. Abraham was declared righteous because of his faith. He gives us the privilege of engaging with him in the restoration of all things and bringing others into the joy of the salvation. Abraham becomes the father of many nations. We also have our faith tested in the way that Abraham had his faith tested. But he leans on God, the initiator, the provider and sustainer of his faith. And like Abraham, who failed multiple times in multiple dramatic ways, we will fail. But that does not nullify the covenant. Now, here is where the problem is. There is a marker to this covenant, and that marker is circumcision. And it is the cutting off of things that make us look like the rest of the world. There's, there's this uh, identification with the people of Israel where circumcision was what identified you as a Jew. But this is how Paul answers when he writes to the Romans. He says, It isn't the Jew who maintains outward appearances who will receive praise from God, and it isn't people who are outwardly circumcised on their bodies. Instead, it is the person who is a Jew inside who is circumcised in spirit, not literally. That person's praise didn't come from people, but from God. And for us, just like there was a marker for the Abrahamic nation, there is a marker for us, the circumcision of the heart, the spiritual removal of what identifies us with the rest of the world. It's an indicator that we are different. And that is something that we need to understand. So the promise 
is the same promise that was given to Abraham is the same promise that we receive through Jesus Christ. Now, you're looking there and you're asking the same question that obviously people were asking Paul. What then is the purpose of the law? Why don't we just start this way? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. It's really four things. The law restrained sin, the law provoked sin, the law revealed sin, and ultimately the law leads us to grace. What I mean by restrained sin is actually quite simple, because this is the reason that we have everyday laws in the United States. It serves a very practical purpose. It creates a more functional society. In the context of the law, the law was given to the Jewish people because it created a more functional society. You can't just see something and take it because there is a penalty. Now, what it didn't do is it, it restrained sin. People didn't do it because their hearts were changed. People didn't do it because there was a heavy penalty. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That's a pretty heavy penalty. And so what it did is it created the society where sin was restrained. The second thing that the law does is it provokes sin. Now, the Bible tells us where there is no law, there is no sin. In other words, if you didn't know that you were doing something wrong, you can't be accused of actually breaking any law. I didn't know that that was wrong. And so I'm driving down um, in Texas, and I'm lost. And this was early on when I, when I first arrived here, and I get to a traffic circle. And I go the wrong way around the traffic circle, you know, because I'm used to traffic circles where you go clockwise, and here you go anti-clockwise, or what, counterclockwise, whatever, you know. <laughs> See, I didn't know, you know, can't hold me responsible for that. Um, anyway, this cop stops me and says to me, what are you doing? And I said, what do you mean? And he says, you are driving on the wrong side of the road. You're driving dangerously. And I said to him, oh, well, I, I didn't know. I didn't know you're supposed to go this way around the traffic circle and not that way around. Anyway, he was annoyed, and um, he was about to not give me a ticket until I pulled out my driver's license, my California driver's license, and he said, what? You should have known. You got your license here. No, no, you're getting a ticket. This is not one of those things where you didn't know. You should have known. And so the idea that, um, that ignorance is always an excuse doesn't always work, you know? Sin pro uh, the law provokes sin because sometimes I have no desire to do something until I'm told I'm not allowed to do it. So let me show this picture here. This is a picture that I took, okay? In an airport in China, I'm like, I want to take a picture of this just to kind of step in there. You know, I'm being provoked by sin. I'm taking a picture of no, no photography. Often that's where the term forbidden fruit comes from. Let me show you another picture. Right, here we go. Warning. No lifeguard on duty, swim at your own risk, dangerous shore break, strong current, area closed, do not go beyond this sign, right? Why, why are people there? Because they think that the risk is worth the reward. Now, number one, they don't believe that whoever put those signs up knows what they're doing, or even if they do know what they're doing, they believe that the risk is worth the reward. And what the law does is it, it helps, it, it tells us this is stupid, this is restrictive, 
I am the best judge as to what is appropriate and safe and acceptable. These are the kinds of signs I prefer. Danger. This will kill you and hurt the whole time while you're dying. That is a sign that I will follow. You've got to be real clear about what's going to happen to me if I step into this or if I don't, right? Do not put your hand into the gears. That is what will happen. The law restrains sin, the law provokes sin, but the law also reveals sin. Because we believe that mankind is essentially good, we have a good heart, we just need some guidance and some understanding. Except the Word of God says that everything that we do comes from our heart. And so we can't separate our actions from our heart. I can't say it better than John Stott says in his commentary on Galatians. The law exposed sin, provoked sin, condemned sin. The purpose of the law was to lift the lid off man's respectability and disclose what he really is like underneath. Sinful, rebellious, guilty, under the judgment of God and helpless to save himself. And the law must still be allowed to do its God-given duty. One of the great faults of the contemporary church is the tendency to soft-pedal sin and judgment. We must never bypass the law and come straight to the gospel. To do so is to contradict the plan of God in biblical history. What he's talking about is not just in the context of the New Testament, but this is how God planned to reveal Himself and our need of Him right from the time of Abraham. This is what he's talking about. No man has ever appreciated the gospel until the law has first revealed him to himself. It is only against the inky blackness of the night sky that the stars begin to appear. It's only against the dark background of sin that the gospel shines forth. Not until the law has bruised and smitten us will we admit our need of the gospel to bind our wounds. Not until the law has arrested and imprisoned us will we pine for Christ to set us free. And what does the law do? The law locks these two doors that we try to get out of our imprisonment. It locks the door of denial. I didn't know that was wrong. Because the law clearly identifies a way of behavior. The, do, the, the law also locks the door that says to us, I'm not as bad as. So I'm not as bad as Saxon. Saxon may be locked in here, but I'm not as bad. I'm going to find a way out of here. Now, the challenge with all of that is that because those doors have been locked, we look for the door of freedom, and we often jiggle on the handle of works. If I do something, then I can get out of this prison that I'm at. And actually, it's only the gospel that opens the door of freedom. Once we've been locked in this room and the door of denial to escape is gone and the door of comparing to each other is gone, it's only the door of God's lavish grace that is open and can give us freedom. Obviously, the law leads us to grace. Verse 22 is a bit of a confusing verse in the ESV, so I'm going to read it in the New Living Translation. But the Scriptures declare that we are all prisoners of sin, so we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus. In other words, what the law did was imprison us, but the reality is freedom comes through the belief in Jesus Christ. 
The law is a temporary measure. It's designed to point us to Jesus. Jesus was the substance of everything that took place in the Old Testament. You guys have heard of shadows and foreshadowing and the idea of the lamb, the atoning lamb. That was Jesus. The cornerstone on which the temple was built, that was Jesus. Jesus is the substance of the Old Testament shadows. The law provides a mirror for us to look at, to actually see our state. I bought Fallon a super fancy makeup mirror for Christmas. I didn't know how fancy mirrors could get. And it folds out like this. It has lights on the outside. It's got this huge magnifying thing that makes my pores look like craters, right, on there. I don't know why you need to get that close, but you need to get that close. You know one of the things she doesn't do with that mirror? She doesn't wipe her face with that mirror. You can't wipe your face with the mirror. That's not the point of the mirror. The mirror shows you what? That you need to wipe your face. And the law shows you that. The law shows you the state in which you're in. But the law cannot help you cleanse that. And so it doesn't matter how good the law is or how many lights are on that thing or how big that magnifying thing is. Yes, we can be grateful for that. But otherwise, we need to recognize that we cannot wipe our face on a mirror. We need Jesus to cleanse us once we've recognized that we have stuff on our face. The proper use of the law is when we realize how we are to live, that that same grace that Jesus extended to us to rescue us from the penalty of our sin, He is able to extend to us so that we can reject sin. Yes, the law is painful, it's exposing, and it's overwhelming, but that is its design. So the next question we should have is, what is our relationship now? If I am a Christ follower, if I am a disciple of Jesus, what is my relationship to the law? Well, let's break up the law into three categories. The first category is civil, the second category is ceremonial, and the third category is moral. The civil law was designed in order to be able to create the nation state of Israel. These were laws that were specifically designed to help Israel live in a very unique and separate way. In other words, people would look at Israel and say, you are completely different. You don't work on one day in the week. Um, you don't have illicit sexual relationships. Your people are not allowed to take whatever they see. Those are the kinds of things that were set in motion by the civil law. You, uh, you should not intermarry with other Canaanites because they will lead you away from God. And so the civil laws were set up mainly to identify the nation state of Israel. But now, because the Word of God tells us that the church is the new Israel, we don't need those civil laws that separate us from anyone else. That's part of the challenge that Paul was pushing up against here. We are separate from the Gentiles. No, we are not. There aren't two families. There is one family, the family of Abraham. This was always God's plan. But there's also the ceremonial law, the laws that govern how, we, how Israel was to worship and approach God. In other words, if you were unclean or you'd touched a leper or there was, there was any kind of uncleanness in the camp, you couldn't approach God. You had to come to the temple. You had to do this and that and the other thing. There were all these ceremonial laws. Now, Jesus fulfilled all of these laws. We know that Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets. He fulfilled all of them. And so we no longer need to approach 
in the way in which the Old Testament designates for the nation-state of Israel to approach. We are no longer bound to festivals. We are no longer bound to those sacrifices because Jesus fulfilled them all. Thirdly, there's the moral law. And so, as Christians, we are accused of picking and choosing the kinds of things that we follow in the Old Testament. But this hopefully will be helpful in terms of our understanding. The moral law of God is that which reflects the nature and character of our God. The moral law, when it talks about loving our neighbor, caring for the poor. In fact, anything that the Old Testament, that is in the Old Testament as a commandment, that the New Testament reaffirms is something that we as Christians are bound to. Bound to love God like no other, bound to love our neighbor, not to steal, all of those kinds of things, because they are reaffirmed in the New Testament. There are specific things that are no longer part of our journey in terms of a moral law. Now remember, when Karen preached, she spoke about Peter and Paul coming face to face and having a disagreement. And that disagreement was about what? About who you could eat with and what you could eat. And Peter should have known better, right? Because he had the dream given to him by God that basically said, all of the dietary requirements that you've been following as a Jew for for your entire life, that is no longer an obstacle to faith in Jesus Christ. You can eat what the Gentiles are eating. You can have a bacon-wrapped shrimp. Could you imagine seriously not having that? Anyway, I kind of drifted off there a little bit. You can have those. And not only that, you can eat with Gentiles, because that was the big deal. It wasn't just about what we ate. It was about who we ate with, and you can do those things. And so Jesus, the coming of Jesus, changed how we approached worship with Jesus, but it didn't change the way in which we live unique lives that are motivated by love and fueled by grace and mercy. That was never changed. Jesus didn't abolish the law. He fulfilled the law. Matthew 5, verse 17 says this, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Now this is the good news, bad news in this scenario, right? Jesus actually makes it more difficult. As if the law wasn't difficult enough, to actually be able to say, don't do this, don't go there, don't eat that. Jesus raises the bar. Jesus makes obedience to the law even more difficult in order to ensure that it becomes impossible. Jesus says to his disciples, continuing in Matthew 5, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. In other words, unless you do exactly what they are doing and more, you're not going to enter the kingdom of God. And then he raises it up another notch. And he says, you've heard it say, do not murder. But I say to you, if you are angry with your brother, you are guilty of murder. You've heard it say, do not commit the sin of adultery. But I tell you, if you lust after another woman, you are guilty of the sin of adultery. Now, what is the point of what Jesus is wanting to take the hidden heart and expose that? He is more concerned about what is stirring in here than he is concerned about the outward action of your heart. He's raising the bar of compliance to the law so that it becomes literally impossible to follow. It becomes impossible for anyone to claim righteousness 
against the law. So I know this is what we do. I know how to get around this. We'll just change the law, you know, because the law is too difficult. So what we'll do is we'll just change it. Um, and I want to I give you guys a little project for this week. You guys can decide whatever your own law is. You can decide, I'm going to do this, I'm not going to do this, right? Middle of February, how many resolutions are we still kind of trucking on, right? That was part of it, right? I'm going to do this, I'm not going to do this. No one else is going to keep you accountable. No one else is going to know. At the end of the week, these are rules you made up for yourself. At the end of the week, how many of those do you think you will have fulfilled? Not a lot. We're designed to fail law-keeping because it gives us a deep hunger for the grace and mercy that Jesus offers us. Because if we were able to keep the law, we wouldn't have this need of a gracious Savior. The moral laws reflect God's design and His character, but it also reflects the way in which God designed for humanity to flourish. Now, remember those warning signs? And we have those warning signs within the context of the Bible. This is the way in which you have a fruitful marriage. This is the way that you should deal with people in the context of community. This is how you should manage your body. Those are signs of the person that created your body and you and the rest of humanity. And those are moral laws that we are to follow within the grace and mercy of Christ for our own flourishing and the good of this world. So how is this fantastic news? It's good news because Jesus came. There's the bar of the law. He sets a higher bar. He makes that bar, jumps right over it, and then what? Tells us, come, you can do it. No, that's not what he does. He comes around and he tosses us right over the bar. It's not about you. It's not about your strength. It's not about your ability. It's about what I've already accomplished because I have fully completed the law. I have fulfilled the law. As a human being, I lived not only in a very practical way, fulfilled the law, but I fulfilled every detail of the law by heart. Not only did I do that, but I died on the cross so that you were able to understand that the fulfillment of that law is the penalty is gone and the power to break sin is present in your life. He set the bar, raised the bar, threw us over the bar and gave us the strength to stand on the other side. Because this is the key difference between Christianity and any other faith. It is the focus on relationship. And we're not focusing on a set of values or ideologies um, or a different way of doing things. What we are saying as the church is when you enter relationship with Jesus, your life begins to look and feel different. Number one, because you in Jesus, united with Christ, have fulfilled all the requirements of the law, and by the grace of the Spirit, He's giving you the power to live the kind of life that He's called you to live. Not only the kind of life that He's called you to live and we just walk around moping, but a kind of life that is empowered by joy and freedom. The law is like an angry, impotent husband who consistently finds fault in us, is always right, but cannot help us. The law is like an angry, impotent husband who consistently finds fault in us, is always right, but cannot help us. And Paul takes this image 
of being married to the law and says you are now no longer married to the law. In Romans, he tells us that that husband is dead. In Romans 7 verse 4, he says, My brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead so that you should bear fruit. What Paul is saying is that we no longer have a husband who tells us what we're doing wrong, who tells us how to fix it, who is always right about what we're doing wrong, but cannot and will not help us. We have someone who says, this is the way in which you are to live, and I am there to sustain that kind of life. And when you fail, not if you fail, and when you fail, I'm there to help you, to forgive you, and to empower you. That is who we are now married to. When we live united with Christ, we live in Him, then we live like Him. We live fully satisfied lives, a life of joyful freedom in the Holy Spirit that draws us to this kind of activity that brings Him and therefore us joy. Because when you're in a healthy marriage, you desire to please your partner. You aren't driven by fear and you aren't sitting in a swamp of apathy. When you're in a healthy marriage, it is your desire to bring pleasure to your spouse. And that's the relationship that we're in with Jesus. Band, you can come up. The purpose of the law was to restrain sin, to provoke sin, to reveal sin, but it was also to lead us to grace. And so this morning, you might be a seeker and you might be sitting here thinking, I've been told that the way in which to have a good life is to kind of morally um, align to these set of Christian values, then I will be accepted by God. That is not the message of the cross. The message of the cross is Jesus pursued you. Even you hearing this message is Jesus' pursuit of you. Someone sharing faith is Jesus' pursuit of you. You hearing something or a deep desire that something is wrong is Jesus' pursuit of you. You can respond by faith in His grace by saying, I don't know how to dot every I and cross every T, but this I know. I need some kind of freedom. I'm, I'm feeling boxed in because the law is telling me that I'm living a wrong life. And I can't deny it anymore because I can see it. I can't, even when I compare it to other people, I still know that I'm living in this place that is not according to the purpose of God. And, and more importantly, I'm not living a life that is fueled by love and joy. The only door that is open to us is the door of the gospel of grace. And you can walk through that door this morning. For the believer, you know, Karen always says, the wrong people hear the wrong things. Hopefully the right people hear the right things this morning. We find ourselves often on two extremes. For the believer, there are those that have a very sensitive conscience and those that have a seared conscience. Jesus is present to help you identify which of those things you are likely to be in and to be able to find freedom in that. Because we don't want a sensitive conscience constantly living with a sense of low-grade guilt, like I'm never good enough. But we also don't want a seared conscience where when the Holy Spirit of God convicts us about living in a way that is contrary to the gospel, we don't care. Because we've been called to image Him in the way in which we walk. We can be neurotic legalists we can be apathetic, licentious people. That is not the joy and freedom of the gospel. 
The joy and freedom of the gospel is to know that because he set the bar, cleared the bar, threw me over the bar, I rest my faith, my hope in him. I'm following him. I'm trusting him. Jesus modeled by his life and death that he wanted to meet us in the weeds of our reality. Not in pretending, but in the weeds of our reality. And, and this is the cool thing about that. He doesn't just sit there and say, I know this is hard, I know this is difficult, and I know you don't want to live this way. And many of us as friends, we can do that to each other. But he has the power to actually resurrect our lives from that. He has the power to say, I know that you've done this again. I know that you've thought this again. I know that you've been betrayed again. But even like Lisa said, I am here present to be able to help you do this. Open the door of freedom. Jesus modeled by his life and death that he wants to be with us. He didn't model this sense of believe in what I said. He's be with me if I abide in Jesus. If I live with him, talk with him, grow with him, that is how we make progress. The law exposes our need of grace, and he gladly gives us the forgiving and empowering power that we need to stop destructive patterns in our life that are bad for us without this, without motivating us by shame, by fear, or by external trophies. That is a God I want to worship. The words of the song say this, it is so sweet to trust in Jesus just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus said the Lord. That's what we're doing this morning. We're trusting in Jesus' word. It is finished. If you believe that I paid the penalty of your sins on that cross, if you believe the power of sin is broken over you, then it is finished. There is nothing else for you to do. It is so sweet to follow Jesus just to trust him at his word. Uh, we're going to go into one more song, but I think there's two ways that we can respond. Uh, the first way is just kind of, as we've been talking about the last few weeks, uh, about the curse of the law, I feel like we can, there's two different sides to it. Either you can feel like you're kind of stuck in having to earn and prove yourself to God, um, and we know that we're free of that now. And um, I've just been thinking about how generous the gift of Christ is to us, that we, we don't have to earn anything or prove ourselves. We don't deserve anything, um, but God gives us that gift, and we can be reconciled to our Father the way that it was intended to be. So if you feel like you're stuck in trying to earn yourself um, or sorry, earn your way to God or prove yourself to God. Um, I'd like for you to receive prayer over here to my left, your right, and just have the leaders pray God's generous gift of Christ over you. And then also if you feel like um, you're stuck in sin and you, you feel like you're stuck in this cycle and you kind of feel like I'm stuck here, I need to, I need to give up because I can't really, I, I'm just stuck in this cycle. Um, Christ frees us from that continuously. We can come back to Christ in that continuously. He doesn't give up on us, so please don't give up on Christ's gift to you. So I would, if you feel like that resonates with you, please receive prayer.
So let go my soul and trust in him. Let go my soul and trust in him. Father, we thank you that we live in Christ's faithfulness. That our act of faith is releasing and trusting in your finished work. And we're thankful that we are a people that, just as Nick preached, Jesus, you have brought us, you've thrown us over this bar, and what awaits us on the other side is not the asphalt, but is a big, generous pad. The gift of your spirit, union with you, empowerment, filling, continual communion, you are always present to us. You are generous, as Mitch talked about. So, Lord, we ask that you would fill us and remind us that we would be people this week that are reminded that we have cleared the bar and we are united with you and we live in your faithfulness and that we would wake each day reminding ourselves and being reminded, allowing you to remind us that we live in your faithfulness. Jesus, what you have accomplished and who you are. We love you. And the church said, amen. Amen. If you still need prayer, please, uh, if there's something that you feel like you're dealing with, if there's something, like Mitch said, you're stuck in something, God has the power to move you kind of through that, not just to stay stuck where, where you are. We live in Christ's faithfulness. Uh, for the rest of us, we're going to be out back kind of hanging out, and uh, we love you. Go be the church. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.